So Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 8 through to verse 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Praise be to God for his word. Thank you, uh, Russell, for reading God's word to us this morning. Let me, uh, let me pray as we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's given for us, for our growth and understanding of who you are. We pray your blessing as we look at uh, the church in Smyrna, the suffering, persecuted church this morning, that your spirit will speak to our hearts, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. My friends, this morning we um, continue our study of the book of Revelation and in particular the seven churches. If you are a visitor here with, with us this morning, uh, well, we go through a series of, uh, of Bible uh, teachings here and uh, this morning we are going through uh, the, the series on the seven churches. Uh, Jesus' letters to the seven churches is applicable to the church of every age with the number seven symbolic of completeness. And so of the seven churches, only two of them receive no warning or condemnation, and these churches are Smyrna and Philadelphia. Now, if you want notes of uh, uh, the, the sermon this morning, now I've emailed some copies already, but there are three hard copies here. If you want uh, a copy, raise your hand and, and Jesse will bring, bring it along. But the idea is that you, you listen to me as well, all right? If you want a copy, it's there, I think... Uh, Sunny might want a copy, so just if you raise your hand, we can give that to you, Crystal, right? Yep. And in the back there as well. So. Okay, um, and if you want a copy, just uh, let me know, I'll email it to you. So I trust that as we work our way through these uh, seven churches, that they will give us a perspective of how the Lord sees his church on earth. And how he rebukes, comforts and encourages his church throughout the ages. And last week, uh, we looked at the first of the seven churches, the church at Ephesus. A church that was active in the Lord's work. A church that was doctrinally pure. A church that endured and did not become weary. They were very active in their ministry. A church that kept the honor of the Lord's name. But there was a problem in the church at Ephesus And what was their problem? They had lost their first love. That is a sad situation to be in. To lose your first love. They had forgotten. Their love for Christ had faded away. And Jesus speaks to this church. And he says, look, I will commend you for all that you are doing. You are a great church, very active, doctrinally pure, everything else. But I have this against you. You have lost your first love. And so this morning, while we look at uh, the the church this morning, let me bring us back to that. 
Because for you and for me and for us as a church, our prayer is that we will not lose, by God's grace, our first love for Christ. That Christ will be our number one in our lives, even in the midst of the challenging circumstances. And so Jesus warned them. And today we're going to look at the second church, which is the church at Smyrna. Now, what do we know about the church at Smyrna? I've titled this message briefly, Jesus Comforts the Suffering Church. Let me give you some background information of Smyrna. Smyrna is about 65 kilometers north of Ephesus on the west coast in Asia Minor. Smyrna was a very old and beautiful city. It was a refined city. It was called the Pride of Asia. It was nicknamed Port of Asia because of its natural harbor. Uh, to the Aegean Sea, which is the sea between the mainlands of Greece and Turkey. The harbor provided trade and commercial opportunities as part of the trade route from India and Persia to Rome. So Smyrna was a prosperous city. And writers say that Smyrna had some of the most beautiful buildings. The city was also a place where they had many groups of trees, among which were trees who produced a brown or reddish aromatic gum named or called myrrh, which was taken from a thorny tree. And so the name Smyrna means myrrh in one sense, or bitter. And this word myrrh, which is the Greek word Smyrna, is one of the precious gifts, as we know that the wise men from the east brought to Jesus at his birth. It was also an embalming ingredient that Nicodemus brought it brought in for the burial of Jesus in John chapter 19. And so the city of Smyrna was a Roman colony and was proud of its connection with Rome. They built the first Roman temple in honor of Tiberius and accepted the principle of Caesar worship. Smyrna was a supporter of the Roman demands for public worship of the emperor, acknowledging that Caesar is Lord. And so its residents, its citizens, were called upon to acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. And so today Smyrna is called Izmir in Turkey, and is the third largest city in Turkey with a population, I believe, of approximately 400,000 people. Now we don't know when the church in Smyrna was first founded, as it is not mentioned in Paul's letters, or in the book of Acts. Uh, Smyrna had a large population of what we might call apostate Jews, who were hostile to Christians. And Jesus writes this letter to Smyrna, a prosperous city-based church, a church that was under siege, as it were, from Jews who were there, as well as the Roman influence as well, and a church that was undergoing persecution in a prosperous city. And Jesus writes this letter to comfort this persecuted church. And it is applicable to all of us, even to this very day. And so this morning, I've outlined this this message under three headings, which is, He lives, He knows, He rewards. Three points or three, uh, the basic outline, he lives, he knows, he rewards. 
Firstly, we see friends in our text this morning. He lives. I mean, just look at look at verse eight. And to the angel, that is to the pastor. It's interesting, isn't it, to call an angel, the pastor the angel? Have you ever called your pastor? Oh, angel! I'll be like, what? <laughs> um, right? We've established that the angel is messenger. We've established that, so uh, so don't worry about it. Point is that it's a messenger, and the messenger or pastor or, or minister. The letter is written to the minister, right? To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. What is he supposed to write? The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, I mean, that's a message in itself. We we just read it, don't we? This morning, ah, yeah, we've heard it. How many times? Well, look at it. Look at the text of the angel, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. You see, this church at Smyrna was suffering persecution, as we will see in a moment. And Jesus reminds them that he alone possesses what we might call the attribute of eternity. That is, the first and the last who died and came to life. Let me refer to uh, a couple of passages in Isaiah chapter uh, 44 and 41. Thus says the Lord, this is uh, Isaiah the prophet writing, the king of Israel and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Okay? So God writes that in his word in, 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 in Isaiah, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. And then, in Isaiah 41, we read this. Who has performed and done this, calling the generation from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last. I am He. So, Jesus now says, you see, I am the one, the living one, the first and the last. What an encouragement. I am does that encourage you this morning? <laughs> you know, to, to, to for a moment think and, and focus on the fact that Jesus writes to a suffering church encouraging words saying, I am the first and the last. I was dead. I'm alive. What a tremendous message to a dying world. What a tremendous message to a suffering church. What a tremendous message to the individual believer here this morning. What a tremendous message to all Christians and to the world. You see, he suffered. Jesus says here to this church, to this suffering church. You know, I'm, sometimes it's very easy for us to say uh, to someone who's going through uh, suffering, well, I can kind of understand. Actually, we don't. We really don't know unless we've been there. Uh, someone loses a child, a son or a daughter. Uh, it's, it's hard to actually say, look, I really understand what you're going through because I, I, we don't know. We've never lost a son or a daughter in our lives. If you haven't. Some of you have, I know that. And so you can identify. But for that, for a person who's not gone through an experience, they, they really can't identify. You really can't understand what the person is going through. Or, for example, if somebody's gone through a marriage breakup, you certainly can't understand what the person is, is going through if you haven't been there yourself. You see, but Jesus says, <laughs> you see, he says, I am alive because I have been there. 
He says to the suffering church, he, because Jesus suffered persecution, did he not? He suffered the cruelty at the cross. He suffered death by crucifixion. He took all that persecution upon himself. He understands what persecution is because he was there. He had traveled through the journey of suffering. He was persecuted. He knows what his people are going through because he himself has been through it. He knew suffering. He is the suffering servant whom Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah chapter 53. And so my dear friends, again, I want to reiterate it this morning. That to understand the New Testament, to understand Christ, we need to see it in the light of the Old Testament. It is God's word from Genesis to Revelation. Complete. And so when Jesus speaks and says this, I am, he's connecting to the Old Testament, the suffering servant, the one who underwent persecution, he knows suffering. He suffered. He died. He died on the cross for our sins. But death could not hold him down. He conquered the grave and he rose from the dead and he is alive. And therefore he can say, I know what you are going through and fear not because as we see in verse 9 and verse 10. I know. He says, he knows. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Jesus says, I know. Because he is all knowing. Right? He says three things here. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know your slander. He knows all things, but he mentions these three things. You see, this was a suffering church. I know your tribulation. The word tribulation... Essentially means this, to live in oppression, to live in distress, to live under affliction. That is tribulation. It is serious trouble that crushes those who are affected. And how many people in the world today are living under oppression? We boast, don't we, that we live in a, in a modern world. <laughs> right? You've heard the term? We are so advanced in our world and we thank God for all the advancements of science and everything else. No questions about it. But we also live in a world that is really under oppression in many parts of the world. People living under abject poverty and, and struggles in life. You see, but these Christians in Smyrna lived under serious oppression which led them to poverty. I know your poverty. This is a condition of one who is destitute of riches and abundance. It refers to abject poverty, of a beggar, of extreme poverty. Now, we, we don't see so many uh, beggars here in, 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 uh, in Melbourne. Perhaps you see a few, but not as much if you go to Asia, if you go to places like Sri Lanka from where I come from. Uh, we, we see quite a lot of beggars. And sometimes it's hard to know whether this is a business or not. Because some of them are begging as part of a syndicate. You, you just don't know, so you give. But that's not what is referenced here. What is referenced here is abject poverty that people are going through real struggles. And these Christians, this man has suffered because, you know why these Christians were rejected by their non-believing Jews in the business world. They were rejected by the Roman influence in the place. They were not given jobs on account of their faith in Jesus. They were alienated from the workforce resulting in financial oppression. And there were no such laws as we have here in Australia, which we are covered with laws, aren't we? Unfair dismissal. 
can't dismiss somebody now easily because you'll be taken to court. We have workplace laws. Uh, we have anti-discrimination laws, which are safeguarding the workplace, which is good. But at that time, there was, even if the laws were there, we don't know. But these Christians had no, no chance. They were not given jobs. Imagine that. Imagine that. You go to work tomorrow. Many of us will go to work. Some people don't like, oh no, you want tomorrow. Oh, forgot about it. <laughs> You're not going tomorrow to work, right? It's Anzac Day. Well, what a thing to have a long weekend, eh? Yeah, some of our congregation members are not here this long weekend. Doesn't mean much for ministers anyway, Monday, so. But the point is, when you go to work on Tuesday, you, you go in there because you have a job. And imagine you said that your workplace, I'm sorry, you're not going to get a job here because you're a Christian. Off you go, we're sacking you from the place. I mean, it can't happen like that here in Australia. But imagine if, if you're if persecuted in the workplace or you, you put out of your job. Imagine what it was for these people, for the fathers and mothers who had to provide food for their children, who, who, who didn't have money, who had to go through hunger because they did not have work. And that's what's happening. That is exactly what took place and is still taking place in some parts of the world where Christians today are marginalized and not given employment unless they recant their faith. How sad. Uh, look at what Jesus says. You are so poor. I know. I know it. And then what does he say in the text? But you are? He's rich. Now, how do you, how do you reconcile that? <laughs> is Jesus downplaying their physical needs? Is he actually saying, well, don't worry about it. No, no, he says, I care, of course. But I have to remind you of something else. Even though you are poor, you are absolutely rich. What a contrast. What a thing for us to remember, isn't it, in this world. You see, we can be so focused on the riches of this world. We are driven by perhaps the riches here. Now, if you are being blessed by God with your riches, praise God for it and use it for His glory. But when that becomes the focal point, we have lost the plot. And Jesus says here, even though you are poor, you are in my sight absolutely rich because you are sons and daughters of the King, of the one who is alive. I have blessed you with every spiritual blessing. I'm going to give you, as we will see later, the crown of life. I'm going to take you away from the second death. I have blessed you with my presence, with my peace, with my power. I have blessed you with every spiritual blessing. And so, you are rich. How do you see yourself this morning? Poor or rich? Do you see yourself rich in Christ? Do you see yourself as blessed abundantly in Christ? No matter what our circumstance might be on the material point of view, that in Christ we have everything that is given for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Because He gives us everything. Our satisfaction and completeness is in Christ, the one who has died and now is alive. What a blessing. He says, I know, I know that you are poor. I know your tribulation. I know 
your slander. Slander of those uh, who, who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You see, in the Roman Empire, there were quite a lot of wealthy, wealthy Jews. They, were ma- they had made their money by doing business with Rome, and they probably made Smyrna their home because of their business deals. But these Jews of Smyrna refused to acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah. They should have known better with all the knowledge of the Old Testament that Jesus is Messiah, but they did not. And these Jews were spreading false rumors about the new Jewish Christians in the church at Smyrna. And so Jesus identifies them as and says the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. They may have considered themselves to be a synagogue of God, but in reality a synagogue of Satan. Instead of worshipping Jesus the Messiah and acknowledging him, they persecuted those who followed Jesus and he calls them a synagogue of Satan. You see, Satan is the ruler of this world, the god of this world, the prince and the power of the air, a cosmic power over this present darkness, the chief accuser of Christians. And Jesus says to this church, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Once again, he utters the words, do not fear. In 117, he said that as well. Don't be afraid of anything because he is in full control of everything. You see, fear. What are the fears of our lives? Could be many. Fear about the future. Right? Fear about our health. You visit the doctor and you have to wait for uh, medical test reports. Don't you sometimes panic? Do you worry? Fear about our loved ones. Will they be safe in this world? Fear about our children who may go out on a Saturday night. And you think, well, are you going to come back safe on the trains? Lots of fears. But this is more than that. This is a fear that's going to, to grip them. Because their lives are at stake. And behold, he says that do not fear. You're going to enter a period of suffering. And the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you may be tested for ten days. And have tribulation. See, the devil is going to throw some of them to prison. And test it for ten days. This ten days is not literal ten days. It's a period of time. He's going to incite violence against Christians. And some in the congregation were going to be sent to prison with the possibility of being put to death that you may be tested. Brothers and sisters in Christ, but while Satan may throw them to prison, God will by the same affliction be proving them or trying them. Friends, ours is a spiritual war. Every time I read Barnabas Fund, I read about Christian martyrs, you Google and find out for yourself. We are to be alert and fear not. It's easy said. Doesn't the Lord understand our fears? He does. But he says, fear not. And we will see. In ten days you, you will have tribulation. Some of you will be sent to prison. But now that there is a period of time, that is for ten days only, this affliction is a period of time. And I, the one who is alive, The one who has died, the one who is living, has put a time frame to it. It's ten days and no more. It's under my control. That suffering will be cut off 
one day. Tribulation is only for ten days. Not more, not less. A period of time. And we are living in that period of time, aren't we? And so that we ought not to be surprised when we hear of Christians and the church being persecuted, of churches being burnt down, of brothers and sisters being killed for the faith. It hurts us, but we ought not to be surprised. Christians have suffered poverty, isolation and betrayal. They have been marginalized, harassed and murdered for their faith. In the first three centuries, for example, the church from the Roman Emperor Nero, I mean Nero, that guy, he delighted in seeing Christians being burnt alive. What about Diocletian? The Roman Imperial again. You see, again we have this, this massive persecution, this fearsome persecution. And tradition tells us of gladiators in the Colosseum. So we, we, had, uh, we visited uh, Rome um, last year. At, yeah, yeah, well, recently went. Doesn't matter. I went to the Colosseum. <laughs> and, 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 and we saw and we stood there. And I thought to myself, what took place here? Where Christians were being martyred. But there on the Colosseum stands a cross. If you've been there, you see that. So, friends, think about there were lions that were let out in the Circus Maximus, where Christians paid the ultimate price. And this raises the question, and I asked this question myself, and I discussed this with some of our candidates or students when I met this past week. Why would God allow His church to be persecuted? Why? Have you asked the question? Here's the question I'm putting to you. If, if the Lord is in control, which He is, why is He allowing persecution? Can He not stop it? Well, John chapter 15, Jesus gives us a clue. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's the point. Oh, don't worry about if they kept that's right. That's the point, isn't it? This is why there is persecution. Hatred of Jesus. Anything committed to Christ is a hatred, perhaps. And so even in the Western world, there is this sense of a marginalization of Christian. All these Christians, they are a funny daddy, whole bunch of people not relevant for twenty sixteen in the modern world. You heard that? No, no. Christians are. God's people are. God's people show love in a fallen world. God's people are able to share His grace. God's people have influences of, of good in our world. As a church, yes, the church has come under lots of criticism and rightly so where it has failed. No questions about it. But on the other hand, as Christians, as God's people, as we think about Jesus who said, Turn the other cheek. Give your enemy food. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. What harm can come from that? So friends, the way of Christ, the way of the cross, is one of suffering and persecution. To some it may lead to the ultimate price of death itself. To others it might be persecution in the workplace or wherever. 
I read Isaiah, we read Isaiah 43, one, let me refer to 1 to 3, uh, Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, he, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And verse 2, Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with whom? With you. Right? And when I walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God. I am. I will be with you. I will journey with you. I will carry you through. I will sustain you, because I have loved you. You are mine. Wow. When you go through a trial in life, remember this. That he is with you. What a wonderful encouragement to God's people. And notice the reward. Verse 10. 10 B and 11. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. He who has here, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Important statement here. Alright? Be faithful unto death. This is not to be loyal. He's not saying be loyal. He's saying be faithful. Unto death. Because two things. I will give you the crown of life. And the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let me refer very quickly, friends, to a faithful servant of the church of Smyrna, whose name was Polycarp. You heard about Polycarp? Some of you have. It's very possible that Polycarp received this letter as the senior minister or pastor of the, of the church at Smyrna. Very possible. Polycarp was the bishop of, of Smyrna in the middle of the second century AD. Polycarp was the follower of Jesus Christ. He loved and served his Lord, master for over 80 years. 86 years he was of age. And from the beginning to the end of life, by God's grace he remained faithful to the end. A faithful minister, faithful pastor. And Polycarp knew the Apostle John personally. And Polycarp was friends with Ignatius of, uh, of Antioch, an important early church leader who himself was martyred for the faith. And Polycarp to make a long story short, was pursued by his persecutors who found him while he was asleep in a room upstairs. You know what he did? When they came after him, he was asleep. Tung tung, knocked the door, went up to the room. And you know what they did? What Polycarp did? He called his staff and said, put out the table. Lay the table. Fill it with food. And he asked his Persecutors to come and have food with him. That's a great way of doing things, isn't it? Come and eat. Eat, eat your fill, he said. And they all ate. And then, he said, he, he said this, can you give me one hour to pray? And so they waited. He prayed. After that, his persecutors took him to the city and led him to the stadium. He was brought before the tribunal and the proconsul counseled him on a few occasions to deny Christ and he would be, that he would be released. What harm is it to yourself? Say, Caesar is Lord. Say it, Polycarp. 86-year-old man, you shouldn't be put to death. Say it, Caesar is Lord. Deny Christ. Do it now and I'll set you free. You know what Polycarp answered? This is what he said. 86 years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? 
86 years I have served him, he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? He was asked a few more times to recant his faith, but this old godly saint, 86 years of age, did not. And before he was burned alive, he said, O Father, I bless you that you have counted me worthy to receive my portion among the number of martyrs. You can read of his account in Fox's Book of Martyrs. And this, and with this statement, an 86-year-old man was taken to the stake. And they were about to fasten him, tie him there. And he said, don't, don't do it. Just let me be here. And that was it. And he, Polycarp, was looking forward to heaven. The crown of life that Jesus had promised is now given to his servant, his born at the stake. Being faithful. You see, that's the point, isn't it, friends? I've heard it many times said. It's easy to start, but it's another thing to finish. It's like going on a race, isn't it? On a marathon, it's easy to get started. But then, what about the end? And you see this last person who is coming at the end of the race. The first person has gone and everyone is cheering him. And then you find this last runner coming. But he's completing the race. And I always think, man, that girl deserves a wreath. Or that lady, that woman. Because she has actually completed it. To be faithful. May I encourage us to be faithful. Because God is faithful. What a testimony. As a Christian, you may face some kind of persecution in the workplace. Or you may lose friends. But Jesus calls us to be faithful. God remains faithful to his people. Be faithful unto death. There's another guy by the name of Joseph, Joseph Tison. I don't know if you've seen, have you read about his life? Some of you might, Romanian pastor. A Romanian pastor was arrested and imprisoned several times in Romania during the 1970s and charged with being a Christian minister. Each time he underwent several weeks of intense interrogation, beatings and mild games before finally he was exiled. And when a secret police officer threatened to kill him, to shoot him, he smiled and said, Sir... Don't you understand that when you kill me, you send me to glory. You cannot threaten me with glory. Don't you understand that when you shoot me, you send me to glory and you cannot threaten me with glory. The more suffering, the more troubles, the greater the glory. So why say stop this trouble? Because the more suffering, the greater the glory up there. And during one particular, uh, let me say this, one heroin interrogation, uh, Tison told his, uh, his people that spilling his blood would only serve to water the growth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, part of the theology of suffering, he's learned what it means to be a Christian in tribulation. I told the interrogator, you should know your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. <laughs> because of glory. And Jesus promises, notice here, the crown of life is the winner's crown given at the athletic table uh, games. The crown of Stephanos, that's the Greek word, uh, is a wreath given to the victor um, in a race, to the one who's won the race. This crown or wreath was well known in Smyrna. It was a famous city for games. Now friends, Jesus says, I'm giving you a crown of life. Think about this. Think about this. 
And Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together. What did they twist together? A crown of thorns. And put it on his head. And arrayed him in a purple robe. Now let's think about the crown. Jesus wore a crown of thorns. And now he gives to those who believe in him a crown of life. His crown that led him to death is now a crown that gives us life. Do we see that beautiful picture here? You see, and Jesus says, he who has you let him hear what the Spirit says. You see, Christians, we will die. We all die. But there is such a thing as a second death. I won't go into all of the details of that this morning. And that is when Christ returns. This is what Revelation 20.14 says. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We die once, but then there's the second death when Christ returns. And that's referring to eternal punishment without Jesus. So today, where do you stand with Christ, the God who loves you? Maybe you're here for the first time, I don't know. Maybe you're hearing this message for the first time. Maybe you can't make sense of it. Come and see us after the service. But I want to say this, that God loves you. This Jesus loves you with an everlasting love. And he walks through the fires with us. He lives. He knows. And he rewards Be faithful, church. Run the race. For at the end, we get the crown of life. And we will not pass through the second death. What a blessing, eh? Do you know this Jesus? Do you love this Jesus? Do you serve this Jesus? If you don't, I invite you this morning to think about Christianity. What is it all about? Leave the church, leave the institutions out. But about Jesus. It's about Him. Learn, read, understand. May God open our hearts this morning. Let's pray.